Fear plays an important role in the lives of every person who has ever lived. Our brains are hardwired to fear what we do not know. Be afraid first, ask questions later. This instinct to be cautious has saved countless human lives back when our routines consisted of hunting, gathering, and avoiding predators. But in the modern era, our tendency towards fear can produce some strange scenarios. Add some religious fundamentalism to the mix, and you've got a recipe for hysteria. This episode, we're exploring the so-called satanic panic that arose in the 1970s and the 1980s around a particular role-playing game, Dungeons and Dragons. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 44, Dungeons and Dragons and the Satanic Panic. About two months ago, a green eyeball was seen up in the sky. This eyeball was so big, it blotted out the sun, okay? These young people are playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's an enormously complicated game in which each player chooses an imaginary character he'll assume. There are dwarfs, knights, and thieves, gods and devils, magic and spells. It's a journey into a land of fantasy through complicated mazes where you use your wits to kill your enemies before they kill you all in a quest for wealth and power. The dungeon master orchestrates and referees the game, creating scenarios both complicated and terrifying. There is no board, only the dice. In August 1979, William Deere's phone rang. Deere was a Dallas-based private investigator, stern-faced, mustached, somewhat of a maverick in his field, known for his unconventional methods. On the other line were two nervous parents, worried about their missing son, James Dallas Egbert III. Egbert was a child prodigy, decidedly geeky, whose brain seemed to always be one step ahead of those around him. His intellect often alienated him from his peers, but he sped through high school, graduating two years early. At age 16, he attended Michigan State University to study computer science. For all his parents knew, their son had been doing well in college, towards the tail end of the summer semester, they couldn't contact him. He didn't respond to letters or phone calls. He was nowhere to be found and hadn't been seen in over a week. Investigator William Deere took the case in a heartbeat and headed to Michigan State to locate the missing whiz kid. Upon arriving, he made for Egbert's dorm room, finding a seeming quintessential nerd haven. Computer parts littered the desk and heavy computer science textbooks were piled on the shelves. But on the shelf near those textbooks, William Deere found what he thought to be a clue. Several neatly stacked books for the game Dungeons and Dragons. When he saw a snarling demon on the cover of the player's handbook, the various occult imagery, and the listed effects of spells, he knew something unsettling was afoot. He scoured through the pages of the Dungeon Master's Guide and even paid a local Dungeon Master to run a game for him. Upon talking to some local players and interpreting tacks on James's corkboard that resembled the basement level of the school, Deere began to suspect that the students would often play Dungeons and Dragons in the steam tunnels below the university. Egbert might still be down there, he surmised, lost, trapped, or worse. He said in a statement to the press, quote, Dallas might have actually begun to live the game of Dungeons and Dragons, not just play it shattering the fragile barrier between fantasy and reality." Unquote. 
Deer's unfamiliarity with and fear of Dungeons and Dragons was perhaps understandable. The game was a fairly recent phenomenon. Had he done his research, however, he might have discovered that the game didn't provide players a total divorce from reality, but was actually part of a centuries-old tradition of wargaming. Throughout human history, as warfare became increasingly complex, generals and officers and militaries across the globe would practice their maneuvers on a map or a grid. Rules for these war games, in German Kriegspiel, were often loose, their function to conceptually test strategy rather than foster fair competition. It wasn't until the 18th century that German professor Johann Christian Helwig created a chess-like war system that ex-soldiers and civilians would play for amusement. Its popularity spread throughout Germany. Its prevalence encouraged many other entrepreneurs to create new versions of their own. And by the 19th century, Germany had developed a culture of wargaming. Aristocrats amassed elaborate wargaming sets and flaunted their winning records. After Germany won the Franco-Prussian War and united under Kaiser Wilhelm, other countries took notice. Many attributed the German victory, in part, to their culture of wargaming and simulating battles before they happened. Eager to get an edge in future conflicts, officers in countries across Europe began playing Kriegspiel themselves, and they found their way into the civilian sphere as well. However, many people were put off by the insane amount of overly complicated rules that often made playing the game tedious. Some altered the game to include an umpire to arbitrate events. This version that included a primitive version of a game master was incredibly popular, and wargaming slowly spread across the globe. In the United States, wargaming exploded in popularity after the Civil War. Wargames with intricate figurines depicting soldiers from the Union and the Confederacy were all the rage. Southern aristocrats could play out wistful alternate histories on their parlor tables, while military historians could lay out real battles right before their eyes. In 1913, British science fiction writer H.G. Wells wrote an influential rulebook entitled Little Wars that further popularized wargaming. Through both world wars, miniature wargaming remained popular among devoted hobbyists. In the 1950s, the Rand Corporation developed a number of wargames to be played by officers in the U.S. military. But by the 1970s, Many in the tabletop wargaming hobby grew tired of role-playing the wars of the last century and instead wanted to go further back into history. This led many wargame designers to create rules to allow players to immerse themselves in the conflicts of the Middle Ages. One such game designer was a man from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, named Gary Gygax. Gygax saw the opportunity in the market for medieval wargames and began work on a tactical game set he called Chainmail. He released the first edition in 1971. At the tail end of the rulebook, almost as an afterthought, he included a fantasy supplement which introduced elves, hobbits, trolls, wizards, and dragons to the game. These fantasy elements were largely drawn from sources like Conan the Barbarian and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings novels. The success of Chainmail and its fantasy component led Gary Gygax to collaborate with good friend Dave Arneson to begin playtesting a newer version of the fantasy supplement of Chainmail. The pair spent endless hours in Arneson's basement with dozens of friends playtesting different rules and variants. During playtesting, they decided to make a crucial pivot 
Instead of players controlling groups of soldiers, they would instead control one hero. This effectively changed the game from a war game to a role-playing game. In 1974, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson released Dungeons and Dragons, rules for fantastic medieval war game campaigns playable with paper and pencil and miniature figures. It consisted of three slim booklets and a few reference sheets housed in a wood grain patterned cardboard box. The rule set wasn't as in-depth as some players wanted, and much of the game actually deferred to the rules from Chainmail, but all in all, Dungeons and Dragons was a modest success. And right from the get-go, players began modifying the game, removing rules they didn't like, or even adding house rules of their own. Because that's the wonderful thing about Dungeons & Dragons that happened from the very beginning. You can play it in any way you want. Some players chose to focus on the mathematical rules and added complexity to combat, while others chose to lean into the role-playing aspect, with characters interacting with each other as dramatic thespians. There was no wrong way to play Dungeons & Dragons. It was less of a game and more of a toolbox for groups of players to create their own games in whatever tone, style, and setting they wanted. The game eventually spread across the United States and quickly became a mainstay of nerd culture. D&D was far from cool, but it was adored by its fans. Dungeons & Dragons was a hit, and its success was only beginning. Gary Gygax and his company Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR, went from a local basement hobby business to a full-fledged merchandising operation. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. You're playing the most phenomenal game ever created. Your skin grows cold from your first glimpse of the enormous beast. It's a product of your imagination. Survival depends on a quick, decisive move. Your choices are limited. Stand and fight, or run. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. Win the treasure. TSR Hobbies. Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. But then, in 1979, James Dallas Egbert went missing, deducing that Egbert was involved in some sort of cult-like fantasy world in the closest thing he could find to a dungeon. The private investigator William Deere moved the investigation to the elaborate system of steam tunnels below the school. For days, he and his team searched to no avail. By this point, news reporters followed William Deere in his investigation and latched onto the idea that Dungeons and Dragons played a prominent role in Egbert's disappearance. The media circus had begun in earnest. The story of a demonic game that could corrupt young people's minds into believing that spells were real and that reality wasn't was already spreading like wildfire. It's D&D, &D, and it's become popular with children anywhere from grammar school on up. Not so with a lot of adults who think it's been connected to a number of suicides and murders. The idea of the game, which is played by highly imaginative and intelligent kids, is to assume the role of one of the characters. One game can go on for weeks or even months. The problem seems to be that some kids take it more seriously than others, take it a step further, playing a character who brings them the power in a game they couldn't possibly get in real life. Newspaper articles popped up across the country bringing up Dungeons & Dragons. The articles constantly use words like cult, demons, and witchcraft. Newspapers ran articles with titles including Student missing due to adventure game. Intellectual fantasy results in bizarre disappearance. 
student may have lost his life to intellectual fantasy game. Student feared dead in dungeon beneath university. The press fed off of itself in a vicious cycle. Soon, these fear-mongering buzzwords garnered the attention of many conservative Christian groups who immediately called for censorship or an outright ban of the game. But because of all this, Dungeons & Dragons was receiving more media attention than most companies could ever dream of, and as a result, their sales skyrocketed, proving true the old adage, there's no such thing as bad press. Young people across the country clamored to get their hands on this forbidden game. The warnings of casting spells, satanic rituals, and witchcraft that they heard from their church pews or from their worried parents only increased their excitement. James Dallas Egbert was never found in the steam tunnels. He was eventually found in Louisiana months later, having fled from college due to academic pressure, various personal problems, and mental health issues, none of them stemming from Dungeons & Dragons. Tragically, James Dallas Egbert III committed suicide around a year later. Four years later, the private investigator William Deere published a tell-all book titled The Dungeon Master that was chock-full of warnings about D&D that stoked fears even further. Other groups began popping up to combat D&D's increasing popularity. One such group was titled BAD, B-A-D-D, -D, an abbreviation for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, founded by a mother of a boy who played D&D, who had recently committed suicide. D&D offered a perfect scapegoat for mourning parents and worried communities who sought simple answers to complex tragedies. Here's Gary Gygax defending D&D in 1985. I have yet to see one bit of valid clinical evidence to show that this has been anything more than coincidental with a disturbed child. If you found 12 kids in murder-suicide with, with one connecting factor in each of them, wouldn't you question it? And that's all people would do. I would certainly do it in a scientific manner, and this is as unscientific as you can get. It's nothing but a witch hunt. This is make-believe, and nobody's murdered, and there's no violence there. I mean... I, to, to use an analogy with another game, who is bankrupted by losing a game of Monopoly? Nobody is, because the money is make-believe, the property is make-believe, and the bankruptcy is make-believe. TSR hired a top-notch PR team to attempt to alleviate fears about the controversy surrounding Dungeons & Dragons. TSR eventually implemented several changes to address parents' fears of the game. They did so by removing references to demons, making their art more kid-friendly, and ensuring that groups of players are always the good guys, fighting and eventually triumphing over evil. However, the hysteria and paranoia had too much momentum to be stopped. Many of these anti-D&D groups began to see more airtime and monetization, and pushed even harder against the game. I do not think that many parents are aware of what's inside the game. In fact, in my presentation, I show many pictures from the inside of the books just to show the images of this game. I yes. mean, the gruesomeness of this game and the occult link to it. 
Well, I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they yes. take the pieces of the game, they would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace, and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces, and children would drop out of life. They didn't want to study anymore. Uh, what, what are the pieces, for instance? Well, this game affects the most intelligent of our children. And the pieces include white witches, wizards, necromancers, the, the clerics, that type of thing. It includes evil wizards. It's a white versus black witchcraft. The good versus evil is white versus black witchcraft. And Anton LaVey, the writer of the Satanist Bible, says there is no such thing as white witchcraft. Well, being a Satan worshiper, he should know. Yeah, he should. In 1981, a novel was published titled Mazes and Monsters, which was based off of the now numerous urban myths surrounding Dungeons and Dragons. The book was quickly made into a movie about a young man's journey into role-playing games and his prompt mental breakdown when he failed to distinguish fantasy from reality. The movie featured a James Dallas Egbert stand-in, played by a young Tom Hanks in his first leading role. Tom Hanks and his friends get caught up in a deadly game of fantasy. I am the maze controller until they take it too far. I propose we play mazes and monsters in a real setting. It won't be a fantasy. Too bad for one of them, because now there's no turning back. This is only a game. I know, I killed somebody. Mazes and Monsters. Saturday at 3 on ZTV, Fox 17. But the fact that there was no evidence for any of these controversies didn't seem to matter. People were enraptured by the cases and others like them. Many thought that satanic cults had infiltrated many parts of American life and that evil cultists were lurking behind every corner. Some fundamentalist Christians believe Dungeons and Dragons actually posed a threat to people's very souls. Dr. Thomas Radecki is a psychiatrist who teaches at the University of Illinois Medical School and who is chairman of the National Coalition on Television Violence. He has been studying the game for several years and says there are 28 deaths related to Dungeons and Dragons in the last five years. In some of those, it was clearly the decisive element. In other ones, it was just a major element in the thinking of the people at the time they committed suicide or, or murder. It's not coincidence, not when you have careful documentation, you have careful notes, you have eyewitnesses. For instance, one case the parents were actually saw their child summon uh, Dungeons and Dragons demons into his room before he killed himself. Another case, the kid had thought he had the ability to astral travel coming from the D Dungeons and Dragons game that he could leave his body and come back and he had rigged it up just according to the rule book so he could do it. He was surrounded by his materials and put a bullet in his head so he could leave his body and he's never come back. The satanic panic of this era was not just confined to Dungeons and Dragons. Concerned parents believed that some rock music, when played backwards, played out secret satanic messages. Other coalitions of conservatives pushed hard for censorship of various media in an effort to protect children. In addition, a new controversial form of therapy that sought to reveal repressed memories led to many accusations of satanic cult activity, especially in daycare centers. The most famous trial was the McMartin Preschool case in 1983, where an entire preschool staff was accused of performing satanic rituals with children and sacrificing animals in horrific ceremonies in the daycare. 
The court case against the McMartin preschool staff lasted for six years, and due to security concerns resulting from the press's desire to get the next juicy detail, still remains the longest and most expensive criminal trial to this day. In the end, all charges were dropped when it was realized that leading questions asked by the therapists were what led to the children's wild claims. Moral panics are nothing new. In fact, they've been an American pastime since the Salem witch trials. But the satanic panic of the 1980s was different. You see, we live in the most peaceful time in human history. And that was just as true in the 1980s. But why does it not feel that way? There will always be doomsday prophets decrying the latest technology or media, but the blame for this moral panic really doesn't fall on them. The blame for the satanic panic of the 1980s falls squarely on the news media. It turns out there's always a buck to be made stoking fears and creating sinister narratives. We pay attention to our most basic instinctual responses, specifically fear and outrage. So fear-mongering is inherently profitable, especially when those fears are deeply ingrained religious fears. All you have to do is turn on network news or look at social media to see that the statement, fear is profitable, is true now more than ever. Clickbait is nothing new. It's just the natural progression of alarmism. By the 1990s, the moral panic surrounding D&D began dying out, although some stigma still remains to this day, especially among older Americans. But Dungeons & Dragons survived all of the controversies and weathered the storm. Today, Dungeons & Dragons is in its fifth edition and is doing better now than it ever has. Several rulebooks and editions have even made the New York Times bestseller list. In a strange twist, Dungeons & Dragons is actually being used as a therapeutic tool for children with developmental or social disorders. In this media-saturated age, many parents and educators are actually now encouraging their children to play games like D&D to promote creativity, free play, and social skills. Dungeons & Dragons has also adapted to the digital age, with online communities springing up around the web and millions of viewers tuning in to watch voice actors and amateurs adventure across far-flung worlds. And popular shows like Netflix's Stranger Things and the sitcom Community have helped usher D&D into the mainstream consciousness. Shouldn't there be a board or some pieces or something to Jenga? No, no, this is a role-playing game. It takes place entirely in our collective imagination. Ooh. I tell the story and you make choices in the story. Okay, let's begin. You were all standing on a country road. Legend has it the evil dragon Draconis dwells nearby. D&D is no longer reserved for social outcasts and nerds in their basement. D&D is suddenly cool. No matter what the naysayers say, Dungeons & Dragons has won, and it's here to stay. But I'd like to spare a thought for James Dallas Egbert III, who lived a complicated life plagued by relentless stress, pressure, and mental health issues, symptoms that plague our modern age. But the strange scapegoat of Dungeons & Dragons is what truly brought the game to the world stage. I just wish he was alive today to see the popularity of the game that he loved so much. While the claim that players of Dungeons & Dragons can no longer distinguish fantasy from reality is ridiculous, D&D may actually have been an escape for Egbert, 
as it is for many who play the game. Sometimes, you need to take a break from the exhausting realities of academic pressure, work obligations, and modern stresses to become an archer in charge of defending a town against goblins, or a wizard on a quest for an artifact that can save the world, or a brave knight surrounded by their closest friends and allies venturing into a dungeon to slay a dragon. Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games actually do prove that magic is real in the form of creativity, imagination, community, and storytelling. And I'm pretty sure that those values can fight off any form of moral panic. With widespread levels of stress and loneliness at all-time highs, maybe becoming fantastic heroes with our friends around a table may be exactly what we need right now. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I began playing Dungeons & Dragons in high school at a church camp of all places. Shows how times have changed. I am a huge fan of D&D and role-playing games, and I play whenever I can. If you'd like to try out D&D for yourself, there are plenty of tools online to help you get started. I cannot recommend it enough. It is the best, cheapest, most wonderful hobby there is out there. And if you didn't know, I also host another podcast called Vox Arcana, where two friends and myself give advice on how to be a better dungeon master. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, search for Vox Arcana wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Hallie, host of the Morbid Curiosity Podcast, Covering history's most notorious serial killers, urban legends, ancient remains, obscure medical conditions, and history's greatest mysteries. Join the creepy community on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Listen, and let us satisfy your curiosity.